Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute when I leave my microphone unmuted. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Again, an exciting show for you today where we are talking about death rays coming in from outer space. And always, always, always taking all those amazing listener questions because this show lives on listener questions, we record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along. Just drop my pen. I'm just a little bit uncoordinated today, okay? Give me a break. You can follow along. Follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Accrington wherever that is, London, UK, Canada, New Mexico, Penzance, Cornwall, Iceland, Howell, New Jersey, San Diego, Texas, Indiana, and Finland. Nordic countries checking in, representing. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links, the live stream location, the place to, to contribute to the show. It's all good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Puzzle of the Space Cadet saying, catching you live. Paul finally loved your book. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's How to Die in Space. That is such a fun book. It was fun to write. Like, it's How to Die in Space, that book, my second book. Actually, all my books that I've written have been really, really fun. Your Place in the Universe, How to Die in Space, and my upcoming book, A Sickness in Science. Uh, well, Sickness in Science wasn't very fun to write because it was very serious, um, heartfelt things, but it felt good to write, if that makes sense. I'll, I'll explain it more when it comes out. But How to Die in Space was just a blast to write from start to finish. Now, we do have some news to cover this week before I get to the Space Cadet questions. And check this out. The news itself isn't super interesting. Kent, Washington, Iowa checking in. Oh, yeah. St. Pete, Florida. The news itself isn't very, like, super interesting. Like, But what it represents is, is, is a piece of a larger puzzle uh, that is incredibly interesting. And, and the reason that the news isn't so interesting by itself is we keep finding stuff like it. And this is just another example of what we've found of objects like this. And I'll get to it. They found a quasar. A quasar is an active galaxy. It has an accretion disk. It's shooting out super large jets. Like this is an active feeding black hole from, uh, when the universe was very, very young, yes, less than a billion years old, I think 780 million years of age, is uh, when this quasar was active, and then we just happen to see it now after all this time. I mean, that's that's cool, by, but not necessarily by itself because we keep finding quasars in the very young universe. But what... Uh, what makes this interesting, what, what people are actually interested about is, is the fact that these black holes, these supermassive black holes, like really, really, really big black holes and quasars and activity, just the fact that they appear in the early universe is itself the big question and the big puzzle. Because in order to power a quasar like this, like something bright enough to be seen billions of light years away, you need 
a giant black hole. You need hundreds of millions of solar masses, maybe billions or tens or hundreds of billions of solar masses. You need something truly giant, which is okay in the more modern day universe because you've had plenty of time for these giant black holes to grow, to to feed and to merge. And so, yeah, we have giant black holes today. What's the big deal? Not a big deal, but then we have giant black holes appearing shortly after the formation of the first stars, like we think the first stars came online in the first few hundred million years. So how do these giant black holes get to be so big so quickly and power on as quasars because you have the first stars you need the first stars to die to generate black small black holes then these small black holes need to merge and feed and grow and do it very 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 quickly in order to reach this supermassive status so they can light up as quasars that is the big mystery it's possible to do this astrophysically it's possible to do this with just normal means like you know normal black hole starting out at a few times the mass of the sun and then extending to get larger and larger like that just happens but in order to do it this quickly these processes have to happen like in fast forward and start to stretch not break but stretch the limits of credulousness and so people have been investigating other scenarios for generating these big black holes early on. Like maybe they collapse directly from dark matter. Maybe they're primordial. You know, these are slightly outlandish ideas, but but when it comes to astrophysical puzzles that we don't understand, we kind of need outlandish ideas. I'm all I'm always a fan of outlandish outlandish ideas as long as it's not aliens. That's too outlandish for me. That crossed the line. Genghis, uh, big bada boom. That's right. Giant quasars. Yeah, these quasars are intense. I love quasars. Uh, I studied them in graduate school. Uh, as my thesis work, I did simulations of quasars and these jets. Like, like these supermassive black holes aren't, they're massive, but they're not physically large. They're like, you know, smaller than a solar system. So much, much smaller than a galaxy. Less than 1% of the mass of a galaxy. But they can power these jets of of high energy particles and radiation that shoot out out of the galaxy uh go out tens of thousands of light years uh and just boosh out of a galaxy they can blow bubbles in the inner cluster medium like they are intense um and they're fun and they're crazy and they're showing up in the early universe i do want to do some voicemails, but we already have a couple good questions uh, from the space cadets about quasars. And so while we're on the topic, we might as well go right to it. So Alpazla on YouTube is asking, why is it that quasars are more common in the deep past? Was there more gas in the galaxies in general for there to be so many active galaxies? So yeah, this is this is pretty cool. When we look around the present day universe, the modern universe, the close universe, they're like, no quasars. There are no active galaxies. There's no blazars. There's no quasars. There's no seaferts. They, you know, there, there's a bunch of different categories of these kinds of active galaxies. We don't see any. We go out to the mid-range universe and we see a few. And 
the farther out you look in space, the deeper back you're looking in time. So when we go out a few billion years in the past, there's like a few. And then we go when we push back further, even more and more billions of years, then we see AGN we see quasars all over the place. We only see them in the most distant parts of the universe, which means they are coming from when the universe was much, much younger. We think what's going on. Uh, it's a lot like this is an idea. It's a solid hypothesis. It's a little bit hard to tease out of the data because, you know, you have to do a lot of population statistics here. But what we think is going on is that Active galaxies are fueled by mergers. When two galaxies collide, a lot of gas ends up sinking towards the center, a lot of accumulation of material, then you get the accretion disk, then you get a lot of activity around the central supermassive black hole. That activity is able to launch these extremely powerful jets. Uh, but then once it eats up all the material, once the, once the gas around the black hole um, heats up, then the whole quasar thing shuts down and it's over. Merger events can bring in a lot of fresh material for a new round of quasar activity. So we think there is some sort of connection there. In the early universe, the universe was smaller, it was denser, there were more galaxy collisions on average than there are today, and so more opportunities to trigger these quasar events. So that's why we tend to see them in the uh, far out universe, not necessarily in the present day universe. I forget how far away the closest quasar is. I believe, I don't want to say a number because I think I'll get it wrong. It's more than 250 million light years away. More than 250 million light years. If I, if I'm but I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'm sure someone will fact check me. Uh, listen, we got a lot of cool voicemails. And as we discussed last week, I've been neglecting the voicemails because of my rants and tangents. And uh, they deserve some attention. So let's go. Let's go. Who are we going to do? Let's do this one. Hello, this is Aton. I just was reading brief answers to the big questions by Stephen Hawking. And I have a simple question. Or maybe not so simple. I'm not sure. Um, he used the word singularity to describe the center of a black hole and the Big Bang. If a singularity is an inf infinitely dense, infinitely small point, how can there be a difference between a Big Bang singularity or the or a black hole singularity? Or is there no difference? Very, very good question. I, uh, this is a very common question because really in physics, there are only two places or astrophysics. There are only two places where singularities show up. One is in uh, black holes. At the center of a black hole, you have a point of infinite density from all the material collapsing in um, and gravity just overwhelms all the other forces and it shrinks down to an infinitely tiny point. The other place where you see singularities is in the Big Bang, in the history of the universe itself, where there are universes getting bigger. In the distant past, it was smaller, hence all those quasars happening. In the distant, distant, distant past, it was incredibly small. It was like the size of a peach or whatever. And then in the incredibly distant past, it was the size of a single geometric point. It was a singularity. Now, these two singularities do share some things in common. They are both points of infinite density. They are both places where our physics breaks down. 
However, these two singularities do are do operate differently. A black hole singularity is a point in space. Like I can I can point my finger at a black hole. I know exactly where the singularity is. I can travel to it if I want. I can travel away from it if I want. The Big Bang singularity is not a point in space. The whole entire universe is compressed into this point. It's not a point in space, it's a point in time. The Big Bang singularity occurs in all of our pasts and never in our future. So we're always moving away through time uh, through that Big Bang. Or sorry, away from that singularity. So... They're very, very different. They arise from just different physics. They arise in different scenarios. But what they do signal is that our physics breaks down in each of these situations. We don't understand what's at the center of a black hole, and we don't understand the very earliest moments of the Big Bang. Uh, J. Mark Morris just reminded me, uh, one of the space cadets, wait, you just wrote an article about Planck cores. Um the Planck core idea, so I wrote an article for like uh, someone, space.com or life science, uh, talking about uh, we don't fully understand what's at the center of a black hole. We don't fully understand the singularity. The singularity is a placeholder for something else. We don't know what's at the center of a black hole. We call it a singularity for now because we don't have any better ideas. Some other ideas that come from uh, some very, very theoretical physics, hypothetical physics, replace it with a very, very small, very, very dense uh, nugget of matter called a Planck core because it'd be at the size of the Planck scale, like 10 to the minus 33 meters or something incredibly small like that. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, I wrote that article because a paper came up. Uh, you know, this idea has been around for a long time. Paper came out exploring it. We don't know if it's right. Uh, and then if if we do have a solution to Big Bang, or sorry, black hole singularities, that doesn't guarantee a solution to uh, the Big Bang singularity. These could be different physics, different situations. We presume that they're somehow connected because once you get to this region of incredibly tiny, incredibly intense physics, you're going to find some universal explanations, but you're not exactly guaranteed. I'll do another, I'll do a, another voicemail, but right now I do want to mention, I want to remind you that you can join the conversation by going to spaceradioshow.com. You can leave a voicemail right there. You can also join the Space Cadets live, tuning in from around the world. That's spaceradioshow.com. And this show is brought to you by you. That's right, you, patreon.com slash PM Sutter. That's P as in Paul, M as in Matthew Sutter. It's like butter, but with an S. Patreon.com slash PM Sutter. You can set up a contribution every month to keep this show going. I really do appreciate it. You can also drop a super chat, a one-time chat over in YouTube right now for any dollar amount that you wish. And I really, really do appreciate all the contributions that everyone makes to make all of my science outreach and communication possible. Now, we, we, need, some, we need some voicemails. Who are we going to do? Who are we going to do? One, two, three, let's do this one. Take two. This is Larry Beckham, one of the many executive producers of the weekly Space Hangout. I uh, had a question about ergospheres. If you're in a spaceship and you approach, say, Sag A, 
Did I do Ergospheres last week? Did I do this? Sorry, folks. I, I'm I'm so bad at this because I think I delete or, or I archive the voicemails and then I leave it up. I'm like, that's a really good question. I totally forget. But as Larry's asking, I believe I talked about Ergospheres last week. So let me switch tracks here. Let's go to someone else. And then the space cadets will remind me if I talked about Ergospheres last week. And I'm, I'm, I need a better organization system. I know, Nancy. Nancy can help me. Whenever there's a problem, Nancy is the solution. Let's go. Hi, Paul. Siki here. I've got a question about speed of light. Um, as I understand it, photons travel at the speed of light, and so they do not experience any time. But with Cherenkov radiation, that's caused by particles going faster than the speed of light in a specific material, such as water. My question is, when those particles exceed the speed of light, do they experience time backwards or inversely? And if they do, what would that actually mean? Thanks. That is a really, really, really fun question about the speed of light. And yes, yes, um... The faster you go in space, the slower you go in time. So the faster you move, the slower your own personal experience of time is. This is something... Um, oh, Nancy is saying, I don't recall you talking about ergospheres last week. Larry was cut off. Okay, I'll come back to Larry because I could have swore I talked about ergospheres, but maybe it was in something else. Um, so I'll go back to Larry's question. Don't worry. Uh, so you can go... Uh, the faster you go in space, the slower you move in time. When you, the speed of light traveling in a vacuum, that is the absolute fastest you can travel through space. It's not necessarily that you don't experience time. It's, that it's just that when you are traveling at the speed of light, there is no conception of time. There is no frame of reference that allows you to judge the measure of time. So it's more like the, the measure of time breaks down at the speed of light. But for now, for this discussion, we can just say you don't experience time. But when light is moving through a material like air or water, it slows down. It does not travel as fast. It is going slower. And so you can outrun light in a medium because light itself is getting slowed down. And then if you're able to go faster than that, uh, you're beating light, but only in that medium. You can never go faster than light in a vacuum, but you can go faster than light in a medium. And when you do, you emit a very special kind of radiation called Cherenkov radiation. Very high energy, blue, ultraviolet stuff. It's pretty cool. We see it in like nuclear reactors. We see it in some astrophysical systems. Uh, it's, it's just cool, very pretty light. Um, that particle, though, is still not traveling faster than light in a vacuum. So it is, even though it's going very, very fast and its clock is very, very slowed down, it is clock is not zero. So there you go. That light, uh, that particle that is traveling faster than light, it is not going through time backwards. It is not doing any of that stuff. It's just doing its normal special relativity thing. There are, there were hypothetical particles called tachyons that travel faster than the speed of light. Those don't exist. They're unphysical. But whatever, they're a fun idea. And it came up in Star Trek. I consulted for a, um, a sci-fi show on Netflix. And unfortunately, I can't tell you which show right now. I'm under um, like non-disclosure. But when the show comes out, I will tell you all about it. And 
they needed jargon words. They needed some science words. They needed some particle physics words. And I will tell you that the word neutrino appears a lot because I got excited by it. The writers got excited by it. I'm like, you know what? If nothing else, however else this show goes down, at least the audience is going to learn about neutrinos. And I thought that was pretty fun. Now let's get back to Larry. I cut off Larry because I thought I had done a question. I had answered his question before. But the always wonderful Nancy is telling me I did not. So let's go, Larry. We'll start you again. Take two. This is Larry Beckham, one of the many executive producers of the weekly Space Hangout. I uh, had a question about ergospheres. If you're in a spaceship and you approach, say, Sag A star, the tidal force is not too bad, and you can uh, cross over the to the ergosphere, but that will bring you to frame dragging. Is there a shear force as the frame dragging begins, and it can result in spaghettification? And if you survive that, and you get to the middle of the ergosphere, is it more stable and calm as you whip around the black hole and um, can still escape? I'm not sure I understand ergospheres. Thank you, Paul. Okay, okay. I am here to help. And you know what? Uh, I think I did talk about ergospheres last week, but it was a different question. I think it was a different question about ergospheres. And so maybe that's why I got things mixed up. But enough housekeeping. Let's talk about black holes and rotating black holes. Uh, What Larry brought up is something called the ergosphere, which is this really, really fun bit of jargon. And this occurs around rotating black holes. There is a region of space around a rotating black hole where space itself is moving. The the gravity of the black hole is so strong, it's pulling everything in. And because the black hole itself is spinning, it's causing space around it to spin along with it. So as you approach a spinning black hole, you will find yourself going in orbit around the black hole, even if you didn't intend to do it. One of the many reasons why you should avoid black holes. Now, we often depict the ergosphere as like a, a, a region around the black hole. It's like outside you're fine and then inside you're, uh, you're in the ergosphere. Uh, there is a region where this ergosphere um, takes charge, I should say. It, it's, it's like its own separate event horizon. You can escape if you want, but it's harder. But on the very, very edges of that boundary, the the rotation is relatively weak, and then it gets stronger as you get to closer to the black hole. So once you enter the ergosphere, it's not it's like it's not like you're suddenly like the you know the carny hit the button and you're like wow what is no no it's not quite like that. 
you will start feeling that little sideways push that you weren't asking for. And it will get stronger and stronger as you approach the black hole. That, in combination with the incredibly strong gravity of the black hole, is capable of shearing. It is capable of tearing objects apart. Uh, if black holes or if stars get too close to giant black holes, they will get torn apart and these can flare. Uh, we can see these flares from all the way across the universe. Those are pretty fun. So, in general, I would avoid going to black holes. That's like my general advice all the time. Especially spinning ones. Now, I always try to juggle the space cadets on asking questions and the space cadets submitting questions. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, crack open this cheese and then I'm going to keep asking questions, answering questions. Now, today's cheese, it is brought to us by my dear, dear friends at Dom's Cheese, D-O-M-S Cheese.com. Wonderful, wonderful cheesemongers. And they do deliver. They do ship. If you live uh, not where they are, uh, just give them a ring, give them a phone call. They will ship boxes to you. They did a raclette box a couple weeks ago, which was so brilliant. Raclette is the Swiss like melty cheese that you put over potatoes and vegetables or just directly into your mouth as I sometimes do. And uh, they, like a raclette box, so like little potatoes and, and veggies and all the things and then a nice big slice of raclette for you. Uh, today's cheese, one of my favorite cheeses of all time. I absolutely love this cheese. This is a mimolette. This is a mimolette from Isigny saint Isigny, sure. That's a little rusty, but that's okay. So mimolette is this wonderful thing, like... Uh, Louis XIV, Louis XIV, was like, hey, we're gonna, we're not gonna import cheeses anymore from like the Dutch. Cause we're done. We're done with Adam and Gouda. Uh, you have to buy French cheeses. And everyone's like, but wait, we love all that cheese. And he's like, well, do it yourself. So, so the French came up with like their version of Adam. And of course, they made it better. Adam is fantastic. Uh, it has this lovely, it looks like a slice of cantaloupe, folks. Look at that. Look at that. Even the rind looks like cantaloupe. And then nice, dark, dark orange color. The orange color does not come from aging like this for cheddar. Uh, it comes from anetto, a, a pigment that they add to it. And then the rind itself has all these like little tiny holes in it. That's from a very special cheese mite that is used. Very nutty aroma, um, lots of burned butter notes, lots of uh, salty here. It's like, it's a really, really lovely cheese. Uh, when I lived in France, this was one of my go-tos. And uh, now I'm going right to it. And then uh, the fine folks at Dom's Cheese said the best way to do this is to uh, to slice this, to stick it upright like, like a piece of cantaloupe and just like shove the knife straight down so you like take off these wedges along with the rind. Wow, that rind is tough. Wow. Look at that slice. That is... It looks like a slice of the sun from a slice of... Oh my gosh, this is good cheese. Salty, nutty, deep. It is the French saying, eh, let's make the Adam, but deeper we oui. mm. i could use that all day and i probably will now space cadets 
Mm. Paul Gillian is asking, could we potentially use the rotation of a black hole to accelerate matter? Yeah, we absolutely could. You can extract energy from a rotating black hole. In fact, some of the jet energy in those quasars might be powered, we're not exactly sure, might be powered by the rotation of the black hole itself, like getting some of that energy. Not just the gravitational attraction of the black hole, but the spin itself might play a role in launching those jets. There's something called the Penrose mechanism, which uh, is a complicated setup for extracting energy from black hole. It slows down a little, you get some energy. So if you're like living in the 31st century and your quantum batteries are running low, you're going to go to the nearest spinning black hole. I would love to try the Finnish Chrome Ohm. There's a name and cheese, Lepayusto. Lepayusto? I'll try it. Lipa Yusto. I got work on my international pronunciations. Let's keep going with the black holes. What is the difference between a short shield black hole and a Kerr black hole? So short shield black hole, this is the mathematical description of a stationary, not doing anything interesting black hole. And a Kerr black hole, that's the name we give because it was figured out by a guy named Kerr. For a rotating black hole. That's the mathematical solution for a rotating black hole. Where does all the energy come from? Visto2D is asking. Uh, Some of the energy for these quasars might come in from uh, the rotation of the black hole itself, but also it's just gravity. Like there's, you have this region of incredibly strong gravity. Matter is flowing towards it. And as it flows towards it, it converts all that potential energy into kinetic energy and they can do interesting things. Paul Gillingen is asking, isn't C the speed of causality, not the speed of light? I don't care what you call it. It's a constant of nature. Some people say, uh, like I've seen some YouTube science videos say, we shouldn't call it the speed of light anymore. Uh, We should call it the speed of causality. Yes, that is me slicing more cheese. Whatever. If you want to call C the speed of causality, you can. It's also the speed of light in a vacuum, so you're not wrong for calling it the speed of light. Matthew Cunningham is asking, is light the fastest or is it Cherenkov radiation? Cherenkov radiation is itself light that is emitted when a particle travels faster than light in a medium like air or water. Out in a vacuum, nothing is ever, ever going to beat light itself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Genghis Galahad, interesting name, over on YouTube is saying, I mentioned about galaxy mergers being more common in the early universe. They still happen today. The Milky Way is going to merge with the Andromeda Galaxy in a few billion years. It's suspected our giant black holes will merge. We will enter a brief quasar phase. So, yeah, like quasars can happen. But in the modern day universe, they probably only happen every few billion years in our like local volume. Edward Hinton, our quasar spewing matter into the early universe. Mostly radiation, but they're all they are spitting out particles. These jets are long jets of high energy particles like electrons and protons. Mostly radiation, but these jets, yeah, they're spewing. It's, it's gross. It's gross. 
Constellation Pegasus, I was talking about outlandish ideas needed for the Center for Black Hole. Don't outlandish ideas get the ball rolling to form, like, better ideas? Yeah, totally. That's why I'm not against outlandish ideas and why I actually, like, I like writing articles about outlandish ideas because, you know, it's kind of fun. What's not fun is, unfortunately, our broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of Space Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter. This show is brought to you by you. You can go to patreon.com slash pmsutter. You can drop a super chat over on YouTube. You can go to pmsutter.com slash store where you can get merchandise like mugs and shirts that say uh, sarcastic things. You can also get my book, which also says sarcastic things in it, but also lots of science information. I will mail you autographed copies. Yes, you can get it in bookstores. I did a secret signing today at a Barnes & Noble. Check out social media for whenever whenever I post it. You'll get more information. But if you want an autographed copy that is not secret signed, you need to go on my website. Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for producing this show and wrangling the space cadets. Thank you, all space cadets, for tuning in. Our time is so short together. But what is time anyway? Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com. For more info, links to the live stream locations. You can follow me on social media at Paul Matt Sutter. That's who I am on all channels. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. Transmission.